You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. And we're sure that Frank and Weenie will make more at the bar than it made in the theaters. Um, uh, we're going to, uh, we're open to questions. I just wanted to open up by saying we, we have a, a theme emerged for me in this, which is a theme of, of children of irresponsible, erratic parents. <laughs> and I'm wondering, we have here two parents. They're actually this one set of parents, and they have kids. And I'm wondering, is this, is this autobiographical? Is it, is it, um, is it retro? What is it? He was looking at you. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I'm looking at you. <laughs> For me, um, the um, the things happening in reflex for Davy make him really a kind of PTSD parent who is properly fearful of his own life because he's literally tortured in that book and, and captured. And, but as a result, though, here he has a child who is as precious to him as, as his wife. But his wife, at least at the beginning of this book, can jump, and his daughter can't. So he is over-controlling. <laughs> he is over, he's just fearful. And when we're fearful, we do things that are possibly not the best thing. And so in this book, that is his arc. And I see that in my own parenting um, as something to fight. Uh, when I was a kid, it was probably not as safe as it was for kids today because we were not aware of the degree of, of child sexual molestation and so on that we are now. But now we are far more fearful <laughs> of for our kids' sake, since we're actually more worried about our kids' behavior. So in a sense, it's, it's a little bit about that. I mean, for me, hmm. it's about trying, as my sis brother-in-law, when my sister gets too, I think she goes, Let it go. Yes. Let we do that go. for each other sometimes too. Let it go, honey. Let it go. <laughs> so well, for me, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just curious. Go ahead. Okay, so for me, um, in a very disguised way, I think um, Child Left Behind is about um, being a feminist and a parent um, and the very difficult choices that women still have to make. Um, between their career and their kids. And, um, and it's also, uh, I realized when I was thinking about it one time, it's also about um, reproductive choice because Hannah didn't choose to suddenly become the parent of her younger brother and yet she's burdened with him and a little bit later in the story she has to make a decision and he basically, I, I'm going to give you a little spoiler, he does live. Um, the early indicators are that he is going to be both mentally and physically um, debilitated by what happened to him and his life on Mars. And um, so she basically has the, become the unwilling parent of a child who's like about eight or nine years younger than she is. I mean, she's basically going to have to decide whether to parent him. Um, and her initial response is, no, I am not going to parent him. I'm going to give him over to the state. And then, of course, you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of other stuff that happens that I'm not going to tell you about. But um, I think that, um, I think in some ways I've been very, very fortunate in my life. But in other ways, it's been a very, very big challenge for me to be um, a mom and an engineer and try to keep my writing in my life. And my writing is more than anything else central to who I am. When I was a child, um, I grew up in a family and I love both my parents very much, um, but my father was very authoritarian and he was a disciplinarian and he was very critical and controlling and sarcastic and he used corporal punishment. 
and I could tell he loved me, but it was intensely, um, I think, painful to me. And so, you know, I think um, that made me, I think part of the thing that happened with Steve and me is we met two, we met each other and we realized here's this person who grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family and wanted to outgrow it somehow. And, um, but, you know, we were kind of having to make it up as we went along. So I think we tend to explore it a lot in our fiction family stuff and how do you figure out how to be a good parent when you don't really have good, a good pattern good for it. Yeah. yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a deep answer to a, yeah, I, I like that. I also think it's a recurrent theme in science fiction. I'm thinking of, uh, it's not the only one, but certainly like, if you look at like, I was thinking of Childhood's End or a lot of Heinlein has to do about parents who are kind of clueless and kids who aren't, you right. know, <laughs> and how that, but that, that may be a theme in fiction altogether. I don't know. Often a theme in YA where you need to get the kid away from the parents so the adventure can happen. Right. I'm <coughs> well, the the floor is open if people want to ask questions. <laughs> I had a couple. Uh, yes, please. Um, first of all, love your work. <laughs> and and um, I wanted to know a little bit about some of the history about um, Jumper and Reflex is the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, the first book, Jumper, dealt so with such big abuse, as well as terrorism, which I thought was, you know, those two things kind of I thought were very strong. And then 9-11 happened. And um, did that, did the terrorism <coughs> aspect of it come really big and you walked away from it? Or how, I mean, I just kind of curious about how that event and where it was in the writing of, of the, uh, the second. Okay, I wrote uh, Jumper, and Jumper was published in 1992. And at that time, we had actually had a whole series of terrorists. We had a lot of hijackings, and we had the Aquila Laura um, cruise ship hijacking, which is sort of modeled <coughs> on the one there. So we had these events, but they were nothing like there, like um, what happened on 9-11. I was um, around (laughs) four chapters into Reflex when 9-11 happened, and I could not touch it for a couple of years. For more more reasons than just the terrorism, Um, among other things, there are significant scenes in Jumper that happen just outside the Twin Towers, literally. He's falling on the outside of the Twin Towers, and so, I mean, this was a, a pretty significant um, thing. And if me. you don't mind my interjecting, we actually lived in New York from um, 1990 to 95, and our first daughter, Emma, was born there in 1992. And so I think there was maybe a little bit of... We banked in the concourse of... Um, of uh, the Twin Towers, yeah. And our, our daughter friend. was at chi- was in childcare a block away, and the, um, right. And I worked in Seven World Trade Center, so it was a pl- that was our community, and we had friends and family. I mean, it was no, we did family of choice. We were that was we were out of New York for six years when it happened, but it it affected me pretty seriously. Um, as far as writing goes, or being able to continue that particular book, I had to take a definite break before going on. I kind of think it did. Um, there's a sort of corporate bad guys thing happening in Reflex, where it's it's a cross between um, bad guys, well, misguided people in the government, and then you have the terrorist. Uh, who had killed his mother. Probably the most unrealistic thing about the entire book. The only (laughs) teleport in the world has his mother killed by terrorists. Um, But it was a first novel. (laughs) 
but yeah, but um, I think it did somewhat affect that. I was not. I was not willing to treat terrorism as the bad guys anymore because the issues were a lot more complex after 9-11 and I was not willing to treat those in a trivial fashion. You know, so I, I did. I think I did steer away from that. Cliff. So I noticed that the, the segments that you both read uh, were on some level about the human beings, and we've already talked about that, but also on some level about the cold, hard facts of physics. The physics of jumping, right. And although, you know, all fiction except for maybe certain kinds of fantasy has to deal with the cold, hard facts of physics, but science fiction has really embraced physics as a plot point <coughs> uh, and, and an important element in... Even, even if there are no spaceships involved, just the physics like of jumping and getting black eyes or the, the physics of losing your air when you're in a Mars colony. And I was wondering how, how you think about that when you're, when you're coming up with plots or you're world building or you're just free associating you know, wherever, I don't know if you outline first or whatever, but the point in which you're inventing the story in your mind, uh, do you think about uh, how, how do you think about physics in terms of how it flows in and out of the story you want to tell or drives the action? That's probably, the scene I read is probably more explicit than a lot of stuff I've done, though there are scenes in Jumper and in Reflex that equally In all of your books. Yeah, <laughs> really? but, but I guess... <coughs> It goes back to Space Cadet by Robert Heinlein, <laughs> where he's sitting there. He spends his entire, not quite chapter, but it's a major scene talking about when they get up to the ship that is the Space Academy, and they're in free fall, and then they start the thing spinning. And, and I mean, for me, reading that stuff, when I read it, it was going, oh, this is how you write fiction. <laughs> you've got to talk about physics. I mean, you've got to talk. In fact, I learned an enormous about about my understanding of physics comes out of science fiction. God help him. Early on. <laughs> and sometimes that's a mistake. I mean, if you don't, if you, if you take science and real world information strictly out of fiction without checking it <laughs> elsewhere, you can end up with some really weird assumptions. But it still was, this <coughs> there's the thing about humans that we use story to understand the world, even if it's so, I think s I think it's a very realistic way, an important way of uh, of actually dealing with universal universe realities, uh, right. actual world. Uh, there is a story involved in it, whether it's an apple falling on someone's head, which never happened, but it's the story. But it's a great story. It's yeah. a great story. So we got the thing going. Yeah. There's um, uh, in some some sense, and this is way overstated, but I almost think you can think of science fiction, a lot of science fiction are kind of like my, uh, the Little Taylor stories. Everybody knows here knows about the Little Taylor. Does everybody know about the Little Taylor? Okay, so a Little Taylor story is, um, and I'm probably going to totally mangle this, um, this folktale, uh, so help me out here, um, anybody who actually knows the details better than I do, um, but a Little Taylor uh, lived in a village and there was a giant uh, ogre that was terrorizing the countryside and um, had not been able to be defeated and so these you know um, group of villagers were looking around for somebody who could help them defeat this monster and the little tailor um, was uh, I think he was talking about a was it nails in a shoe or something no, like that? No, what happened... Oh, swatting he flies. swatting flies, and then he embroidered he on his thing, killed, killed seven, seven in one blow. blow. And so they were really impressed about the this man who, who reputedly had killed seven in one blow, and so they came to him and they basically recruited him to, um, to kill the ogre. And, of course, um, again, I don't remember the details of the story very well, but he ends up killing the uh, ogre through 
through his intellect, um, and he was very clever. And there, there are tales like this all over the world. I, I remember reading a similar one, uh, a Chinese story about uh, a young man who outwitted a dragon. And so this idea of sort of coming up against this great um, malevolent or dangerous force, and through your wits, you manage to um, you manage to overcome the obstacle. And I think that is one of the appeals of science fiction: is that you know we. Through our technology, technology is just a form of power. I mean, um, science fiction uh, is a, a, I think, a, a literature that says we can understand the world, and we can, un and through understanding it, we can master it. Um, there is, I think, that's one of the appeals. It helps us overcome our feelings of being overwhelmed by the sheer uh, immensity of the universe. I don't know. As opposed to techno thrillers. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of uh, Crichton, who's, have, if the more we understand about the universe, the more we're going to kill ourselves, um, and which I actually object to strenuously um, as, a, as a form of literature. Well, but that's a, a tendency that developed out of science fiction, uh, which is that, you know, technology also has unintended consequences. So I think I, that's I true. That I think that's very true. A lot of, um, you know, dystopian science fiction goes into that. But I'm thinking of uh, in the very beginning, I think, when I, like you, when I started reading science fiction, and people have heard this before, so I'll cut it short, but the golden age science fiction, <laughs> a lot of it, I think, was promotional literature for space travel. And they described it quite well. So you under, all of a sudden... There was a, a world of 12-year-old boys who understood that, uh, you know, that gravity, uh, what zero gravity might be like, you know, what a vacuum might be like. And it was, you know, that was good stuff. And and actually, I it, to me, it was a great decline when science fiction no longer dealt with that. So you have Star Wars and people whooshing around in space with wings on their, you know, all that kind of stuff. But... Um, you know, the technology. I mean, you worked out the technology in Jumper quite carefully. That's what we were doing tonight. As long you know. as you accept the completely impossible original thing about popping people from one place to the other. Yeah. What? You mean that wasn't uh, I have real? A um, for those of us who are regrettably not familiar with your series, could you just explain briefly about the jumping? What, 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 uh, what, what's with the jumping? Why is he able to jump? <laughs> What's with the jumping? <laughs> right, it says. Jumping is... <laughs> well, jumping in, is teleportation in the book, but um, there is never an explanation for why he, why he can do it. There's a lot about what the limitations of, of jumping are. And um, really, it's a metaphor especially in the first book, for escape. And it's about why it comes down to no matter how far you can teleport, as Linus and Peanut said, there's no problem so big it can't be run away from, but no matter how far you run or how far you teleport, there you, are. you are still there. <laughs> there <you> are. <laughs> yeah. So it's a metaphor, really. Yes, please. Publishers sent him to, to really make us look good, didn't he? <laughs> no, he sent him to make you look bad. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah, there's this, there's this boot camp. <laughs> you will have good characters. You will pay attention to them. <laughs> no, I mean, I think some of it is that sort of frustrated reader syndrome. Is that, 
I, I'm sure everybody here um, has experienced it, where a book is like got these really great ideas, but it just doesn't quite get the characters right, and you're you know, and you're like, by God, I'm gonna get it right. I'm gonna get those characters right. Um, but of course, and I personally can attest that it's a very very difficult. I think science fiction, at the risk of um, uh, indulging in exceptionalism, I think um, science fiction is a very, very difficult form to do well. Um, and the, probably I think the same thing is true of fantasy and historical fiction. I think those three have a tremendous expository burden associated with them. And, um, and you have to do whatever that form is, whatever is special about that form, whatever is special about science fiction or fantasy um, or historical fiction, um, is that otherworldliness, you know, the difference, um, and you have to do that. But um, particularly with science fiction, I think it's easy for those of us that love science to sort of climb into our heads and not kind of like be willing to get down and roll around in what it means to be human. Um, I, I think um, certainly I know that one of my favorite forms of escape from my problems is to just climb up in my head and run like a little rat in a cage. So, um, so I think, um, but ultimately a story is not a good story unless the people are really in the foreground. There's a, um, there's one theory of teaching writing that says you must read really, really good stuff and, uh, you know, so that you can model it. But there's another theory that says no. You should read really, really bad stuff so that you fling it across the room and it puts a dent in the. Uh, you say, I can do better than that. <laughs> say, oh. Because you're going to go, if you read the really good stuff, you go, oh. I'll never, I'll be, never able to. be able to write that good. But if you read the bad stuff, <laughs> you can handle it. Yeah. Please. Speak as if you're speaking to more than one person. <laughs> in your books, um, there are a lot of really interesting user interfaces, so particularly in proxies, but I see that <coughs> a lot. Is that a particular sort of technology that, is there a reason that, that that's something you Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Repeat the question. Uh, the question was, is uh, there's a lot in my fiction about human-computer interface and the different ways that we might communicate with computers and they might communicate with us. Um, I'm really fascinated by uh, the parallels between information and biology. Biology is basically a form of information. Um, and I believe with our computers, we're actually creating a new kind of ecosystem in a way. And I believe that, you know, everybody here familiar with uh, Werner Vinge's singularity concept? Um, the basic idea is that um, uh, there's, what's it called, Dyson's curve? I forget what it's called, and I'm sure I'm getting it wrong. I never remember. Not but Dyson's, but, but there's, a, there's a kind of like a... Moore's law, you mean? Moore's law. Yeah. How yeah. every 10 years or whatever it is, there's a doubling of the... Uh, of it's 18 months. Is it now? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, computational complexity and that um, although they keep pushing the curve out because they find out there's all these complexities, there's this idea that eventually computers are going to become um, self-aware and when they do um, we can't see beyond that because they're going to simply be beyond our comprehension they're going to be so much smarter than us that and so much you know very powerful that you know and, and there's been a lot of fiction about it obviously I mean we've all I think read um, you know some of the works that, it, that have dealt with that but um, but I believe um, that the way out of that paradox and that, that danger is that humans and um, machines actually become integral to each other, become mutually dependent upon each other. And the way that's going to happen is through that interface. So I'm really fascinated by that whole, you know, yeah. Lost a limb. Yeah, it's like being an amputee. <laughs> I've had my computer amputated. Yeah, it's definitely an auxiliary 
Mm -hmm. Thank God for it, too. Please. I, I really like the competence of the characters that you build in uh, Jumper and Reflex and in uh, Wild Side. <coughs> I like the method, um, methodology. Methodology. Yes. Okay. Uh, methodology. The smartness. Themselves or the new world that they've discovered. Um, but I am curious when you're writing, and you touched on it earlier, if there are plots or elements that you have drafted and then veered away from, if there are any left on the cutting room floor that you could tell us about, that you experimented with and then decided not to go with. Boy, I'm too lazy to do that, to write stuff that I'm not going to um, <laughs> use. It's um, Occasionally there's something that doesn't work. That's uh, just obviously, but most of the time I write slowly and kind of deliberately, not deliberately in the sense of intellectually. It's, 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 it's very visceral. I mean, I'm j I just write. I write books like I read books to see what's going to happen. Which makes, unfortunately, me a slow writer rather than a uh, rather than a fast writer. Um, so there's not as much about that. But I was talking um, earlier. Uh, so Cory Doctor and I were talking about this at one point, and he was talking about his own writing, which he feels is very broad because he throws all these different ideas in. But he said, "Yeah, but I'm only this. I'm writing the same thing, and what you do is you." take one idea right. and you go deep and, right. and you yeah. just work on all the implications of the one idea and and that's sort of where I am I'm looking for the implications of the one idea I'm not going to take you know add a bunch of other elements that's that's where I that's where I go that's where I am yeah. being married to Steve has really been a fascinating experience for me as a writer because he writes so differently from the way that I do. <laughs> Steve, sorry? Oh, <laughs> I'll tell you about it. Honey, you should ask. She writes, um, you know how sculptors take away a story, take away everything that's not the story? Well, she writes like that, but she writes like that by throwing this massive block of lots of different things in. And then she, then she starts pulling away the things that are not pertinent to the story. And I'm... Almost the opposite. I'm completely opposite. I'm working from the inside out to flesh it out. It's fascinating. I'm one of the, I've learned so much as a writer from, from Steve. Um, I've learned how to plot better um, because he's a really, really good plotter. Um, I don't understand plot. You, I don't think you have to. It just seems to come naturally for you. <laughs> Probably helps if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> What's fascinating to me is to watch Steve. He wanders around the house for 18 months, writing the book in his head. And then he sits down, and it all comes out in this smooth, beautiful stream. And he almost doesn't have to rewrite it all. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> which isn't Which isn't true. I'm a, what they call a churner, meaning Every time I sit down, I've been I'm rewriting a bit of the stuff I wrote the day before. And the sure, day. sure. And, and I mean, I do I that, too. I hit a point where I need something to be set up, and I pop back to three chapters before, and I throw the thing in. But yeah, no, I think, but, I think a lot of writers do that. But I, I don't sprint to the completion of a draft and then go back. By the time I hit the end, it's pretty much yeah, It's really clean, even, even. I mean, for me, um, it, uh, just... Like, it's such a different, he won't even read my first draft because it's so frustrating because it's so not what it is by the time it gets finished. <laughs> he does read it, actually, but it's a, it's a frustrating experience for him. when it's further along in, in the iteration. And he can tell what it's actually kind of about. <laughs> well, it's an interesting way to think about it. I never thought of literature that way before. You know, they talk about... There's putter-inners and taker-outers and all this kind of stuff. But, Potters and uh, pantsers. Yeah. yeah, but what you're saying, the, the thing about having one idea and really working it, you know, I think about, um, you know, I think about, uh, like, Cory Doctor, uh, Cory's a good example. Cory, they, they spin off ideas that they don't bother to develop, you know, but they're, they're fun. 
you know, it, it throws off sparks. And you think of, and I think that there's a lot of truth in that. I think of a series like Dune, you know, which is one big idea, you know. And then you think about Philip K. Dick's whole career, which is spins off of me. Or think about Faulkner, which is like that, you know. And then, uh, anyway, it's an interesting way to look at literature. Yeah. find those after I've written them, whatever they are, including Jumper. I'm not as, uh, I really don't think, um, I think when you really set out to put something like that in a book, you end up with a um, propaganda tract, you end up with a thing. But when, but if it's something that concerns you, it's going to emerge naturally when you, when you try to write the story. In Impulse, I think the story is is the conflict between control and protecting. The ethics of parenting. The ethics of, of letting go, the ethics of trying to let people become. Um, the ethics of, of parenting teenagers, of that was, sort of that moment. I was at a science fiction convention that I ran when I was 20, 19 years old. Um, <laughs> I ran, I was the chairman of a convention called AggieCon at college when I was 19, uh, called, was it was AggieCon 5. College Station. College Station, Texas. Um, and, and then I was guest of honor at AggieCon 42 or so. Um, and one of my ex-girlfriends from back then oh, that was a brilliant did this moment. public thing and they said, would you let your daughters date someone like you? Okay. <laughs> and he was known as the red herring of romance. That's that was my nickname. Yep. But um, but I said, and I wasn't even thinking about this in any sort of deep way. I said, it's really none of my business. Um, I can only model good behavior. Um, and hope that my daughters, because if I try and control them at this point. It's far too late. I had to model a successful relationship in front of them and hope that they took enough out of that to then establish healthy relationships themselves. Um, but that's why I just, I, I just said that, and I wasn't thinking about it. And I had one of my, not an ex-girlfriend, but an old friend come up to me. That was the most feminist thing I ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, but, the but point what is his ex-girlfriends, and there were several of them in the audience, were saying was, good answer, Steve, good answer. <laughs> yeah, right, good answer. But it was a good answer, actually. But I guess it's, that's what the dilemma, that's what's happening in there. I mean, Davy's urge is to control and protect and, and totally keep his daughter from experiencing life because there's dangers out in life. And that's like, it's not control and protection at stasis. That's something that does not preserve it. It freezes and, and blocks and smothers. Smothers, yeah. So I, that's where I am in impulse. I mean, that's what's going on, I think. Um, Granny. Yes, regarding um, parenting and, and so when my kids were little, um, it was Go outside and play. Find something to do. Um, Be back at six for I'm dinner. Busy, you know, I'm busy writing. I'm, you know, uh, now 
supervised you know, 24-7 because of all the fears and whatnot. So I think that's what you're showing. At least <coughs> in, in your story, you have the daughter who's the unsupervised child. Nobody's mm -hmm. supervising her. And then you have the son who is supervised and yet <coughs> has the, 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 the real danger. Know, the catastrophe. And uh, um, the album Davidson Archive, all the letter are at Texas A&M, our, our university. So, um... I do believe there's been a big line. cultural shift, you're right, in terms of uh, expectations of how to parent our kids. They're much more um, controlled and supervised now. Right, there was yeah. even Grown a case parents. recently where <laughs> someone sent, it was like four years ago here in the Bay Area, someone, a, a child who's like 12. Eight. Eight. But essentially what his parent took him down to the train, the Caltrain. It was actually New York. No, the one story I'm not Oh, it's a different story than maybe it was 12. different story. So the person's 10 years old. He's taken down to the train and put on the train, and he's sent to a station uh, where another friend is waiting to pick him up. A, secure, a, a BART policeman feels that this is not appropriate and pulls him off the train and, and feels that he's because this saving him is, from child abuse <laughs> is, that is a form of and when it's totally <laughs> I remember when I was seven and my sister was eight we lived in Albuquerque and my um, uncle Ray and Aunt May lived in Grants New Mexico which was about 70 minutes away and we got our parents put us on a Greyhound bus to go visit our, our aunt and uncle and it was a big adventure. It was the greatest thing ever. It was so much cool fun. But I can't imagine parents putting kids that age on a bus and letting them go to a different town. Well, I didn't intend to make this a discussion on parenting. So if we have any more dis uh, <laughs> questions about the literature. And then we got on a spaceship. <laughs> Spaceships. <laughs> I did want to say one thing. Is, you know, it is true that characters drive these stories and uh, this is not uh, both of these guys are quite good at this they're successful modern science fiction authors and I am myself uh, and it's what's done now but I as I, I do not agree with this view that uh, you have to have great characters I think if you look back at gold uh, how many people remember the the old classic uh, I wrote down for a Mimsy where the bar goes. Do you remember this story? <laughs> or surface tension? Uh. Or um, what else did I? Have? Nightfall? Or the billion names of God? Does anybody remember a character from Wait any of these though. stories? That's a difference, I believe, between short fiction and novels. I oh, believe yeah, no. a character it takes characters well, to sustain a novel. Oh yeah. Surface tension um, is a is possibly. It was at least the the original novella was pretty darn long. Um, it was way too long. Stories, it needed yeah. that length, though. No, but I agree with you. I think sometimes an idea can really sustain a yeah, story. Yeah, that's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, and you were going to agree with me? Actually, I was going to disagree with you. I was going to say a lot of the times those idea-based stories are actually delivering a lot of the character of the author. Oh, of that's the not author. the same, though. I would argue that well, it's still. Hmm. It's still the pleasure of human companionship. It's not quite the same thing. You're still getting a human person. You know what I would argue? It, that it's a that there's a, a great pleasure in that um, connection you feel to somebody who came up with such a cool idea. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, w I was just trying to be I a... I was thinking you're being of the, the Heinlein, uh, not the Heinlein, the Asimov short stories where, you know, like um, Marooned off yeah. Although yeah. I have to no, admit, Susan although I, I, I certainly, I, I can, when I go back and I read um, Asimov's um, work, I was a real fan of Asimov. Um, and when I go back and read his work, I can see the... that he doesn't go like there are things that are not his strength but his he's really really good at at so many different 
things that science fiction for science fiction as a science fiction reader I want somebody to be good at that and he's good enough at the other stuff that you know for me I really you know I'm I'm still a fan of his work you know and and when I also look at for instance um, although I'll certainly Asimov the man had issues with what you know how I as a woman would want to be treated in unlike Highland <laughs> <laughs> oh god don't anyway, even get I'm me going there <laughs> the prob loving problematic fandom there's a Avram it's not Avram Davidson who is it it's um oh, I can't remember I won't digress but um anyway uh I think that um I think about Susan Calvin um, who was a really actually important early influence on me. Here was a woman who was like this brilliant scientist and researcher. And, you know, by modern standards, she wouldn't be seen as a, like, somebody as a feminist <laughs> ideal. But she was still like, if you think about the era that he was writing that in, you know, how many times did they have a, like a real woman character who was like this powerful, brilliant, you know, scientist the way she was, and and I loved Daniel. I loved the whole, um, you know, the uh, Caves of Steel. Yeah, exactly, and and some of those detective, you know, space detective stories. And I think um, the Foundation trilogy and what you know, his his thinking about um, how how can we try to in a you know, in a civilization that's so complex and it's, you know, we, we see this this tremendous horrible collapse coming, how can we use our um, resources and our intellect to try to engineer a better future? You know, Despite I don't know. the thing we cannot avoid. Right, right. I, I just think he did so many really important things. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, I guess I'm, I'm sort of, I, I think character is really, really important, but I don't think it's the only important thing that science fiction yeah, does. Yeah, I wasn't trying to demolish anything. I was just saying there's, you know, it, it's not always the, the main thing. You know, yeah. Interesting. I was thinking in particular, I mean, I I don't know Neil Stevenson as well, but I think the same thing could be said possibly about Neuromancer, right? You have a whole bunch of stuff that's a whole bunch of different things, but I still think there's some, there's some pretty good character. I mean, um, Molly is just... We all like Molly. <laughs> I, I, I haven't read Diamond Age or Snow Crash, which shame on me, because I've often felt like that was exactly the kind of thing I know, exactly the kind of thing I would love. But I did read uh, Cryptonomicon, and oh, my God. <sighs> that is such a brilliant book. But and it was, how, how it was, it I was just about to go there. I would say it was broad and deep. I think it was both. Um, the thing about, the, one of the things I love about Neil Stevenson, he's so idiosyncratic. I mean, he is a, he's a novelist who could be an essayist or an essayist who could be a novelist. I don't know if you've read it. I actually have not. Oh, you should. No, Cryptonomicon I... is a masterpiece. If you are, are, if you are or around um, uh, nerds of any stripe, because it basically captures the essence of geekdom. <laughs> I loved that Captain Crunch scene. That Captain Crunch scene about getting the milk temperature right and taking the bite at exactly the right time. And it was like this engineering problem that the, the main character had solved. And I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> it, All right, you convinced me. I, you know, I've had a hard time with David Foster Wallace, too. And I think maybe it's the same. I'm too old school. But I, I need to get to work. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, yes, please. I want to say something very short. Am I the only you're not the only one, obviously. <laughs> yeah, how and many people here have had or know, who, how many people know of Captain Crunch? No, I've met no Captain Crunch. Oh, oh okay. Are you talking about Captain Crunch, the phone head? The phone guy? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh. Well, Captain... 
He was a, a well before no. hackers, right? He was the phone. He was the phone freaks, right? Yeah. 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 The ones who would oh. uh, game the oh, long yeah. distance system in the day of payphones and so. Oh, when you I had all those numbers. Oh my God! In the sixties. Go oh, I remember that. Was that, that sure. in the like the um? What there was, there was yeah. a book that they wrote. Uh, what oh, book yeah. was it in? It was in um one of those. Yes, that was it. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah. there's a particular there's particular books of numbers and books of techniques. That mm-hmm. that I remember. I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah. All right, we got room for like three or four more comments. And Heather had her hand up. Uh, do you have oh. an e-book seller that you would like for us to use if we wanted to buy the e-book first? Um, um, no. Uh, I would like you to get the one that is most convenient for you. In the case of my my backlist, the first five no also I've written, I actually publish the, the ebook versions of those, even though they're in print. Some of them are in print uh, because they're they were published that long ago that I was actually able to retain uh, those rights. So I actually get a good chunk of those books, but uh, as far as the most recent books, uh, it doesn't. I get the same regardless of where you go. So be as kind to yourself as as possible. Yeah. And um, my books, uh, my backlist, up against it, like, the same as Steve, um, uh, is out from my publisher and my backlist should be out soon. And hope what uh, my plan is is to get it out both I, uh, tour. Um, but I plan to uh, publish my backlist as ebooks, just like Steve. I have the uh, the rights to it and. Uh, and whatever glass houses is already out there. Yeah, glass houses is out, and uh, I we don't have my okay. So I have yeah. two other books in that trilogy that um, we plan to get out soon. But I'm planning to get it out on all, all three major ones: um, the Nook, the uh, Kindle, and um, iTunes as well. So hopefully that's Heather. Um, yeah, I was just sitting here listening to you talking about character. Realizing that um, when I look back, <coughs> all the books that I end up kind of putting down halfway through were mostly books that didn't have any female characters in mm-hmm. them. And I read a lot of old science fiction. My dad had a lot of old science fiction and stuff. And, and there were actually very few that had good female characters. And some of them, the stories were sort of humanistic enough that it was fine. But a lot of them, I really felt that lack. And I was curious. Um, had anything to say about characterization and I mean clearly both of you do good female characters and um, does that did that have I mean particularly like Laura when you were growing up and you're reading science fiction did you notice that back? oh my god did I notice it I so <laughs> noticed it <laughs> and you know I think that um, one of my biggest uh, the real moment for me was when I read Heinlein, um, because I think that um, Heinlein, bef- most of the writers that I read at that time, and we're talking like in the like 70s, 67, late 60s, early 70s, that was when I was really discovering science fiction and reading it, like everything that I could get my hands on. Um, most writers did women characters, if they were present at all, were just like stick figures. They didn't even have any personality. They were the mad scientist's daughter. They were the, you know, whatever. Heinlein, on the other hand, he had, if you think of like um, the three ages of womanhood, you have the, the childhood, prepubescence, then you have the time that she becomes sexually active to the time that she enters menopause, and then you have the time after that. That first period and that last period he did great women characters and <laughs> in that middle period he did great women characters who were awful women characters he he was so obsessed with his own i think issues about you know reproduction and sex and whatever you know he was a product of his era or whatever that <laughs> he just 
it was like, you know, the thing that was so frustrating about Heinlein is everybody, all the other guys, you know, their, their female characters were stick figures. They were not even human characters. I didn't even feel anything for them. But Heinlein, they were very, very human, but they were like these distorted, you know, they were just like these weird kind of funhouse mirror pictures. <laughs> he was so good at characterization that he couldn't do stick figures. But as a consequence, he made these like horrible, like I will never forget when I read, what was it, uh, Time Enough for Love? Was that the one? Stranger I, in a Strange Land. Well, Stranger in a Strange Land was definitely one of them where, where like the women were like, they were like Stepford wives. They were highly <laughs> intelligent. They had all of these characteristics that made them like interesting people, but they were like totally like these little, you know, I'm here for your pleasure. I'm here for your pleasure, and I'm going to be, you know, exactly what you need me to be without any kind of, like, awareness that women might have lives that were outside of that. That it was it was kind of like a – it was actually a wake-up call for me. It was like, I, I don't want to read – I want the women to be the heroes, you know. And it's not that I have any – it's like I'm great if women, men want to be the heroes, too. Like, why wouldn't they want to be? That's totally cool. But, but I want, you know – you know, um, yeah, totally. Okay, if you, if you want to go back into golden age science fiction. C.L. Moore. Well, no, Judith Merrill <laughs> gave us, I think, some of the earliest, not fantasy, but hard science fiction that, that focused on women's characters. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And, and, you know, real women who had children, and what, what was the name of her seminal story? Um, only a Mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then of course um, Kate Wilhelm and okay and then we went and Catherine McLean and Kate Wilhelm and then Marion Zimmer Bradley who is fantasy but she re reconfigured the Arthurian legends from the women's point of view right right so absolutely we got our little little um, you know band of <laughs> that's right that's right and actually it's true and C.L. Moore stuff um, I really loved her stuff when I encountered that and uh, I don't know if any of you have read some of her work she was an early science fiction writer but wrote some really great stories as well and I think what you said about the difference between a short story and a novel is really true you can't skate through a whole novel without any wheels on your skateboard um, yes please I stood about as close to him as as Grania. Oh no, you were much closer. You were sitting at the aisle <coughs> seat, well, and he walked right by you true. with his retinue. Uh, but but I um, but uh, I was actually kind of shy. I actually I could have gone and introduced myself. I did not meet actually any of the friends. I met the director. I met the uh, the producers, and I met the screen. The, main, the last screenwriter. <laughs> there were five screenplays <coughs> and three different screenwriters. So, uh, when was the book originally optioned for the movie? What year? For which movie? Which time? Oh, which time? Well, the thing is, what I meant is, Jumper was optioned around six times before it was optioned that last time. This is a nice so, little cash cow, actually. So, <laughs> so, but in 2003 was the big option that actually developed into something. So 2003 is when um, New Regency got it and, and paid for a 30-month option. And usually you pay for like a, they a pay 5000 for a year, and then they hardly ever renew. And that's right. sort of what was happening. And then they paid $60,000 for 30 months. So And um, it basically and at the end of that, 30 months, if they wanted to continue to go, they would have had to pay me another $60,000, but like one week before, they messaged over a check, you know, to the agent so Come that, back. boom, we're exercising the rights. But otherwise, so the second period where they would have had to pay more would not have gone against the advance for the the purchase price, but the first 60000 was <laughs> against the price, so they could reduce that. So, no, they didn't spend anything. But, but you can't complain. And, Come and on. we will, no. I will tell you, we <laughs> no. will, for both of us, forever be grateful to Hollywood. Um, despite any complaints that we might ever have had, 
about thing, the thing you know because it enabled all kinds of important sure yeah. I, I'm currently a full-time writer because of that movie mm-hmm. a 16 year old book at the time was for at least a week on the New York Times bestseller list mm-hmm. and you go back to and I was able to quit a really awful, awful job at that point so um who was the writer of uh, Postman Always Rings Twice? Uh, James M. Kane. Oh, Kane. Right. I'm Kane. thinking of the Postman. Yeah, but Kane. And he said when someone, a reporter said, Mr. Kane, isn't it horrible what Hollywood has done to your books? Because he had several different books made into movies. He said, Hollywood hasn't done a damn thing to my books. They're right there on the shelf, just like they always were. And that's true of Jumper. So... <laughs> I can't complain about the My movie. My friend and I used to cast it in our heads. Did you ever have any casting ideas? <laughs> I was very interested during the ongoing thing. There were several people who were considered. There was even, at one point, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, who was willing to do one movie but was not willing to do multiple movies. And they were, at that time, they were looking at three movies for their story arc not my story arc but uh, for their story arc so he was not willing to so they went on and they ended up with Hayden Christensen well no there first was Tom no 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 uh, Tom Stoppard not Stoppard Tom's there's a uh, there was a British actor they went to first uh, yeah I can see his I can visualize I can him face, but I, I can't, can't remember, remember his name. name and they went with Teresa Palmer from Australia for Millie and they fired both of those um almost immediately after Samuel L. Jackson came on board. We think they were not big enough names. They were trying to make it a star vehicle. got Samuel L. Jackson and they went, this is now really a movie. (laughs) But (laughs) I think that that was probably the biggest mistake that they made in story terms. In fact, if I had the biggest complaint that I had about that movie was that in order to justify the fact, and and I'm actually fine with Hayden Christensen, uh, <coughs> I'm sorry. That was a that was an honest cop. I especially that was an honest cop. But be, they had to up age Davy from 17 to 26, and so the the that pivot moment where Davy decides he's going to break into the vault because he can't basically earn a legitimate living. He, you know, um, for those of you that haven't read the book, which I'm assuming isn't very many people here, but if you haven't, he basically robs a bank. And then he feels really guilty about it. And he, um, he uses that money to get more wealth in a more legal way and basically gives the money back and doesn't steal anymore. And, and, that's, and he's a younger man throughout the story struggling to try to figure out how to cope in an adult world. Um, with this wild card power that he's got, <laughs> that all kind of goes away, and he comes become he becomes this kind of slacker dude who slacker doesn't pleasure seeker. Yeah, who doesn't take responsibility. He sees people kind of like in this horrible, like you know, flood, and he shrugs it off, and he like he apologizes. He's like, "Ooh, this guy is kind of a creep. I'm not that interested in him." I think that all of the decisions that sort of came out of that movie, the weaker aspects of the movie came from the fact that they had to get bigger stars mm. and those were older stars who couldn't play the story that, that had that fundamental appeal that Jumper had. I will say this if you get the DVD uh, or rent the DVD or to get it from the library there's several deleted scenes mm-hmm. and they're all character development scenes. <laughs> yep. And they just I thought that was a big mistake. And, just and I, al- I also think that, uh, what's the name of the director again? I can't believe I've forgotten his name. Doug Lyman. Um, he had mom issues rather than dad issues, and I don't think he really got the whole, like, abusive dad thing. <laughs> it's like he totally sort of, he lost focus on that and, and turned the mother into a very different character who I thought that dynamic just didn't really fit with, again, the appeal of the books. But. Hmm. He did his own thing with it, yeah. and and, and I, I actually thought the movie was, I thought it got way too, uh, I got trashed way more than it deserved. I think it was an okay movie. I just think it didn't really take off the way the book. It did internationally. Did it internationally, did internationally it did well. Well, I meant take take off for me personally mm-hmm. in that sort of like, 
But I, and I, I agree with Steve that uh, Jamie Bell was a great character. I oh, love Jamie Bell. Uh, Jamie Bell in, Griffin in fact, was a good any character. Any scene Jamie Bell was on screen with Hayden Christensen, he also brought Hayden Christensen's acting up a level mm -hmm. by the amount of energy he was giving on that. Sorry. All right, we've got kind of got to let Rena close up. <laughs> uh, these guys are going to sign books. All of you, this will all be on the test. I hope to see you next month. Thank you for supporting SFNSF and science fiction as literature. And thanks for having us. And thanks to Laura Mixon. And thanks to Steve Gould. Thank you. Okay. And they're going to sign books. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.